0: Welcome to Conversations from the Leading Edge, a monthly radio show and podcast featuring interviews about extraordinary advances in the area of peace and conflict studies happening at or around Columbia University. Each month, we feature interviews with scientists and thought leaders who are conducting groundbreaking work aimed at managing conflict constructively and sustaining peace both locally and globally. My name is Peter T. Coleman, and I'm coming to you from the studios of WKCR at Columbia University. The show is sponsored by AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And now for today's show.
1: Hello, everybody. My name is Beth Fisher Yoshida, and I am faculty at Columbia University, and I direct the Master of Science program in Negotiation and Conflict Resolution. I also am executive director of AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity, and I head up a program on youth, peace, and security. And today I'm going to be hosting our guest, Professor Kenneth Kressel, who we're happy to have with us. He is a professor in the Department of Psychology at Rutgers University in Newark, New Jersey. He received his PhD actually from Columbia University working with the famous social psychologist Morton Deutsch, and he also received his undergraduate degree from Queens College couple of things that um, Dr. Kressel has had in his background in terms of research with a large focus on the nature and management of social conflict. He was trained as both a social and clinical psychologist, and because of that, he has three primary questions that have guided his research over the years, and they are, what are the contextual and interactive forces that produce particularly destructive conflict? What strategies and tactics of conflict management are most effective in dealing with such forces? And how do mediators think about their role as managers of conflict? And today's conversation will predominantly take place around the topic of mediation and mediators, because that's been the bulk of Dr. Kressel's research as far as I know. He'll tell us otherwise if it's not. And so we'd like to just begin. Welcome, Ken. How are you?
2: Thank you very much, Beth. Happy to be here.
1: Great, great. So why don't we start with some really just basic introductory conversation around what is mediation and what is the role of a mediator?
2: Ah, Well, okay, you've asked a more difficult question than you may realize, <laughs> but the simple answer to your question is that a mediator is an impartial, neutral third party whose job it is to help the disputing parties come to a mutually satisfying uh, agreement about their conflict. That's the simple answer.
1: Mm -hmm. That sounds good.
2: You want the complex answer?
1: If we have time within our radio program, sure. (laughs) Well,
2: I'll just give you the the bottom line and maybe it will come out more. The the truth of the matter is that depending on the context in which the mediator works, the definition that I have just given you may be um, significantly in error. Just for an example, Mm -hmm. in some contexts, mediators um, are not impartial in the sense that they have responsibilities in their minds uh, to the broader social setting in which they work. So I studied uh, Ombuds Mediators at the National Institute of Health. They work with scientists at the NIH who are in conflict with each other. And because the NIH is one of the world's premier science institutions and is committed as an institution to scientific excellence, when those mediators at NIH are dealing with a conflict in which a promising young scientist, a postdoc most often, um, is in conflict with a senior scientist who wants to retain that young person as a postdoc, when the postdoc wants to get on with their own independent career, mediators at NIH often are not impartial in the sense that in a uh, while maintaining rapport with both sides, they try to help the parties uh, devise what you might call an amicable separation. They see this kind of conflict so often that they call it the autonomy drama. <laughs> and so that's just one example of the how context will make Uh, the first definition, somewhat inaccurate.
1: Okay. So um, then that also touches upon the role of the mediators trying to be impartial or neutral, even though he or she may have a vested interest in the outcome because they're part of the same context as you alluded to. Yeah, I
2: think the operative word for mediators is to maintain rapport and the trust of both sides. So I I may not be impartial in the sense that I I do have a point of view, especially after I learn about the nature of the conflict, but I, I want to act in such a way that both the senior scientist, in my example, and the junior scientist feel that I'm honoring both of their concerns and treating them fairly and giving them a chance to be heard.
1: That's great. Thank you. So in connection with that, because you did mention context, and I know that in earlier research that you've done, you've classified different mediated strategies, and there are three categories that I see. One is reflexive, second is contextual, and third is substantive. So if you can expand on that a little bit, that would be interesting.
2: That was the first study that I ever did, actually. Uh, I was a graduate student here at Columbia, and I was a student of Morton Deutsch's. And I had the very good fortune with Morton Deutsch, who was a wonderful mentor, uh, to be given an unusual degree of autonomy in choosing my research topic. So I went to Mort, as we all called him, and I said, Mort, um, I'd like to find out what labor mediators know about conflict that might be helpful to us who study conflict, because they're professionals and they get paid to do this work. And Mort, in his usual way, said, that sounds great. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, the only professional mediators were labor mediators. This is nineteen. When was this? Nineteen seventy-two, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, way before the proliferation of mediation services. Uh, so, I also had the good fortune of having uh, an uncle of mine. Emanuel Stein was uh, my uncle. He was a professor of economics at NYU. Uh, but he was also uh, a, a person who knew all the great labor mediators in New York. New York was <laughs> and is a major uh, place for mediation of labor disputes. And so Uncle Mike, uh, as I called him, uh, got me connected with all the great labor mediators. So what did I do? I, I, I went to each mediator, uh, and I basically asked them to tell me Uh, what are the factors that make it difficult for you to resolve a dispute, and what do you do to resolve a dispute? And the answers I interviewed 21 people. One of them was a very famous, they were all very experienced professionals, one woman among them, but Theodore Keel, who used to be a revered presence in New York because he Every two years, he would intervene when the subways went on strike in New York, as they regularly did, and he was able to, you know, resolve those usually most of the time, so he became quite well-known. But, so what I learned uh, from these professionals was that uh, when they told me what they did, they have three, three major, what I called, strategies. The first one, you've mentioned them. The first one was what I called reflexive strategies, they usually occur at the beginning of a dispute, from what I was told, and they, uh, they involve um, getting the trust of the parties and the confidence of the parties, uh, and then uh, secondly, assessing what's going on here, what's causing these parties to have reached an impasse. So those are reflexive strategies. Um, The contextual strategies, as I call them, were uh, all these various tactics that they described, these mediators described to me, uh, when things get heated, when people start being disrespectful at the bargaining table, or when they feel that the format is no longer working. So we've been meeting in these joint sessions. It's not working, so I'm going to split these people. I'm going to meet in caucus, private caucuses. That's a contextual strategy in that it's designed to uh, change the context into what the mediator feels is more productive. Humor was another one, uh, another contextual strategy, to lighten the, the tension. Some of these guys uh, were very funny, actually, to interview. Um, so those were the contextual strategies. And then, again, towards the latter stages of the mediation, uh, substantive interventions. These were interventions where the mediator uh, may make a suggestion on the substance. How about instead of making this um, uh, a contract that is only for two years, how about we put in an escalation clause? Let's extend the contract for five years, and let's say in year three, uh, management will increase the salary. So in year one and two, they're giving them a one percent raise, which is not happy for the union. But in year three and four and five, they're going to increase the raises so that the union uh, can sell this to their membership as not an unreasonable, that sort of substantive intervention. Uh, there's one thing I didn't talk about in that paper, but uh, Dean Pruitt, also another very senior researcher in this field, he and I uh, uh, worked together sometime after this study. And uh, what Dean uh, pointed out, I had realized it, but he really made a point of it. There's another dimension for all of these strategies, and that's the degree of assertiveness or forcefulness with which the mediator acts. So although mediators will tell you most of the time that they're very low-key and they don't twist anyone's arms... That's baloney. Uh, Sometimes in some of these labor disputes, any kind of dispute that's very heated, there are times when mediators become what Dean Pruitt and I called very assertive. And they do say um, things like, if you guys don't start getting serious, I'm just going to walk out here and go out to the press and say, I can't resolve this because the parties are being unreasonable. You want me to do that? That's an assertive move. Putting them Uh, on the spot putting them on the spot. And any of these reflexive, contextual, and substantive strategies can be done in a more or less assertive way. Mm -hmm.
1: So just uh, one little aside here, as you were mentioning labor relations and labor mediation, and what a lot of people who are familiar with mediation know is that mediation comes about a lot of times as a result because people or the parties cannot necessarily resolve something on their own and sometimes want a third party in there. And when I've done some work with labor... And management one of the things that um, I always felt was uh, important is that um, there isn't a relationship building that happens during the course of the year or two before they have to come to the table to negotiate and so what happens is there's like basically no conversation and then everybody gets all in that mindset of contentiousness and then they enter into the negotiations which could turn into a mediation at some point, and actually in speaking with different people in management and labor, they said, yeah, if we had more communication, more relationship, and so on, which is just an aside there about the labor relations with management. It's an
2: excellent point. Yeah, it's a very good point. uh, I'm not an expert in labor negotiations. I think you probably know more about it than I do, Um, but I do know that at Cornell University, I think in their School of Industrial and Labor Relations, they teach a course to uh, union and, and management negotiators. They even came down to Rutgers one year and taught, because we've yeah. had some contentious uh, faculty union versus the university in, in past years. Uh, they teach people to um, have a dialogue, and they teach them some basics about what we know is good uh, conflict management practice. Think in terms of mutual mutual uh, interests, how you can satisfy them, and start talking about these things way before the deadline for you. Which is great. Yeah, so I think that speaks to your point. Yeah, it's well that's an taken. alignment.
1: So you mentioned that sometimes mediators, even though they may not recognize it, can be a little bit more on the assertive side, mm-hmm. right? And so I know that your work has been on mediator styles. Did that come out of some of the earlier research that you did, that you started to look at mediator styles? Well,
2: the labor study was not I was not aware at that time, and that study did not alert me to the fact that there are mediator styles. I learned about mediator styles and their importance when I got a grant uh, from the New Jersey Administrative Office of the Courts. This was back in the late 80s. At that time, uh, the New Jersey courts were thinking about introducing divorce mediation into their uh, Practice when divorcing couples uh, could not settle through the use of their lawyers. And I applied for a small grant from the Administrative Office of the Courts, which they awarded to me, and they joined me very, very fruitfully with uh, probation officers in the family court in Essex County, New Jersey, right near the campus, the Rutgers uh, Newark campus, And my job in that project with my three colleagues, uh, Fran Butler, Sam Forlenza, and Linda Fish. Linda was actually a lawyer. She joined our project at at my request. The other two, Fran and Sam, were experienced probation officers who had been doing a form of divorce mediation for some time. The New Jersey courts called it non-dissolution mediation. That meant that the parties in dispute were not married, but they had children but now the courts wanted to expand it to the married population. So uh, in that project, my job was to help the four of us develop a model of mediation that would work and that we could evaluate. That was my job as a researcher, and then teach to other people in the New Jersey court system. In that project, we, we agreed that we would meet on a... I think a weekly basis, I forget now. And the point of those meetings would be to debrief ourselves together collectively about the cases we were handling. We did that for three years, three and a half years. We handled a lot of cases. And in trying to make sense of what we, we learned from each of those cases, it became clear that there were two styles. I had never thought of styles before, but we began to realize, and we had some recordings too, some audio recordings of these. I began to realize that one of the group, uh, the best one of the group, Fran Butler, who was fabulous in the sense... We know that she was very good because when we did follow-up studies of the cases that she handled, the parties settled more frequently, and 18 months later, they were happier, and they liked the agreement. That's she right. was far and above the best. I, who had all this clinical training and family therapy, was not as good. because <laughs> uh, I had some ideas about divorce conflict that were wrong in terms of our context, and Fran knew that context. So Fran's style... We called it, we wrote a paper in the Journal of Social Issues. It was published uh, way back when. I don't know when it appeared. Sometime in the 80s. It's been widely cited. It's a great paper, by the way, if you haven't read it. I haven't Yeah. Uh, in, in any case, uh, Fran's style, we called the problem-solving style. Its goal was not necessarily settlement, but a quality problem-solving process. And therefore, it was heavily informed by behaviors that we came to label the interrogatory style. Question asking, intensive question asking to help identify how the parties had fallen into this pit that they'd fallen into. So question asking would usually reveal things like uh, there had been a prior uh, judicial ruling in the case in which the judge had empowered the father Because at that time, mom had been mentally suffering and was not fit to, in the judge's view, to take care of the kids. But now mom was back on her feet, was working, was stable as you could be. But the prior ruling had made the father feel empowered to, I'm the one who decides about visitation. You know, the judge told me that. And the mom, of course, was desperate to see her two children and was feeling angry and frustrated. So um, that was one one kind of uh, pattern that the problem-solving style was very adept at because Fran and others of us who learned this style from her began to ask a lot of assessment questions, identify things like this latent issue, uh, and begin to reframe, first of all, to, to get the party's agreement that this had happened and that because it had happened, certain things had begun to affect their interactions that were no longer... Working and that were producing a lot of this conflict that was costing them a lot of money and a lot of suffering for their children. Um, so the problem-solving style was based on identifying the latent cause through careful questioning, formulating a possible solution to the parties, not imposing one, but saying, you know, given what we've heard and what we've talked about, it sounds like maybe um, we could use an evaluation of the children um and uh, in one ca- one case that I happened to be involved in, two adu- two teenage children were no longer seeing their father, and he felt that it was mom who was poisoning them against him. But it turned out that it wasn't that. The kids were no longer 7 and 10. They were teenagers. Mm-hmm. And now they had all these activities that dad, and dad was also expecting mom to be his conduit to the children. Well, moms frequently don't want to do that after. Maybe they'll do it in a marriage, but they won't do it w- frequently. So uh, (laughs) I got involved because it was Fran's case, and she said, why don't you see our brilliant psychologist, Ken Kressel, with the children to find out how they're feeling? So we set up a meeting, you know, with mom's consent between the two children and dad and me as the therapist, and the kids said, oh, we love you, dad, but we have all these activities, and uh, so that really opened the gates. So that was the problem-solving style. The other style was the settlement-oriented style. So some of us saw our, uh, our, our goals totally different. Just get an agreement, any agreement that the parties will, will sign to. Uh, and so how do you do that? You tell them how bad it is to be fighting. You know, you chatter at them about, you know, coming to a solution is much better than what you're doing now. And uh, who's got some ideas? Here's a pad for you and a pad for you. Let's do some brainstorming. And um, it was a kind of superficial style compared to the other one, the problem-solving style. And it did work in many cases, but it did not work well in high-conflict cases.
1: It sounds like it wouldn't have been as long-lasting a settlement Precisely. as the problem-solving.
2: As we found out in our 18-month follow-up, the settlement-oriented style sometimes got settlements, but it also was more likely to get people coming back to court, as you say.
1: hmm So then I want to just segue into the whole idea about decision-making. Do mediators decide before a mediation that this is my style and this is what I'm going to do? Ah. Or do they, you think, decide in the process depending on what's happening?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So um, mediators, uh, let's, how can we frame this? So we now know not just from my research, but from a lot of writing from uh, mediators who are quite experienced. Leonard Riskin wrote a very famous paper. Leonard Riskin is a lawyer who did a lot of mediation, and he identified several styles of divorce mediators uh, and other types of mediators. So these styles that are well known to professionals in the field, I will call them formal styles. So you, you know them, Beth, of course, as an experienced person, but they go by names like the facilitative style, the evaluative style, the transformative style. These are several of the big names. So these formal styles um, uh, are taught very often. People write books about them. The transformative style is perhaps the best uh, written about. Uh, Bush and Folger wrote a book that's been very influential on the transformative style in which they set forth the parameters of this style. Uh, I won't go into the details about it. So um, we now know from research that I and others have done that mediators all identify with one or more of these formal styles. They know what they are. They know what what behaviors are expected of the mediator, what the goals are. Okay, so that's the formal style. But what I have discovered, starting with the divorce. Court work, and then I did a a very interesting study at the National Institute of Health with the ombudsman that I referred to earlier. Um, And we've brought professional mediators into the lab and have them have had them mediate a dispute that we we simulated, but it was a very realistic dispute. We now know that, in addition to the formal styles, mediators have um, an implicit approach to the work that is very stylistic and may not at all conform to the formal style that they consciously identify with. Uh, So think about this. Any professional, not just mediators, there are many studies of professionals, fighter pilots, ICU nurses, firemen, people who do demanding work um, have a lot of tacit knowledge, knowledge that They know how to do things that they're not able to talk about unless they're in the situations that they work in or they are asked to describe in great detail a specific case and why they did what they did. When you do that kind of research on mediators or other professionals, you discover that a tremendous amount of what uh, professionals know is of this tacit kind. And so when we studied Uh, say, the NIH people, just to give you an example, we learned that when I first met with Howard Gadlin, who was the director of uh, the Ombuds office at NIH, and he had four very experienced staff, when I first met with Howard and his staff, I said, well, what's your approach, guys? You know, what do you do? And they told me this. We're neutrals, we're impartial, and each case is different. So we have no model. Okay, Mm -hmm. have no model. Okay, three years later, many case discussions later, I said, no. You have a model, and I'll tell you, in fact, you have more than one model, and your model is very uh, interesting, and uh, it, uh, y- your preferred model uh, is what uh, you might call deep problem-solving, it's very much, by the way, like the Fran Butler model, very mm-hmm. similar in that it's heavily influenced by question asking in the initial stages and the identification of a latent cause. And in this model of yours that you prefer, in fact, this is the model that you try to see if it fits every case that walks through the door because it's what you like to do because it's, in your, from our discussions, our case discussions, uh, the best way to develop a settlement that is responsive to the party's needs, context, and the needs of the institution. So you begin every case um, looking for, uh, I I call them decision rules. They're implicit. You're not consciously saying, oh, what's the decision rule? You're saying, okay, in this case before me that just walked in the door, Is there a latent cause that the parties are unaware of that's fueling their conflict? Whoa, let me ask a bunch of questions about that. Oh wait, there is a latent cause here. Oh, now I have to flesh out by asking a lot of questions how that latent cause is affecting the interaction of the parties. Okay, now let me tell the parties what I think we've all learned, not just me, but them, and see if they agree. Oh, they agree. Great. Now let me ask them or help them um, find a solution. Okay, so here's an example. Case comes in. It's a study of animal uh, of sepsis. The, uh, the, the PI is studying ways to uh, to to treat sepsis. Sepsis is a tragically difficult and dangerous. Situation infection of the blood. And we study this, or they were studying it through uh, animal research. I think they were using monkeys of some kind. And there were uh, a lot of vets involved in this study. It was a large team. And they had developed protocols for treating the animals humanely, even though many of these animals were going to die because they were injected with the bacteria. That, that's the nature of the research. And it had been approved by the NIH uh, uh, IRB, Institutional Review Board. However, in the process of this study, terrible conflict developed between two groups of veterinarians. Some felt that the animals were being treated humanely, and others said, no, they're not. And they brought this into the Ombuds Office. So there was a lengthy assessment process by the two, I think it was... Howard and Kathleen Moore, his uh, Howard Gadlin and Kathleen Moore, very experienced professionals. They worked together. They did this assessment, and they identified a latent cause, or actually several latent causes. One was the absent PI. The leader of this very large team was frequently not present to referee or make sure that protocols were being followed because why? He was off raising money, giving talks. He was very important. Second reason was when an animal died or when something went wrong, they had a format for debriefing as a team, what happened here. However, Howard and Kathleen learned that those debriefings were not in the spirit of genuine problem solving, they were more blaming, bad. Not helpful. Not helpful. So they presented this to to the PI and his leadership group. And they acknowledged that this made sense. And of course, they instituted changes um, that made the project viable again. That's an example. Mm-hmm. So where were we? OK, so Howard and, and and his team, they didn't know at the beginning of our work that they had such a well-developed model and a preference for a certain style. And they also, you know, t- as I said before, they told me that they were impartial and all the rest of that. Um, but in many of the cases, we saw that there was a much more sophisticated understanding of conflict that informed their practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they couldn't do deep problem solving, so there was second-order rules. So yes, there's a latent problem here. Yes, we we, we should address it. But the second-order uh, second-order questions were: Are the parties capable of doing this? That was like the major one. And uh, sometimes they weren't. They have they were so either they were so. Uh, uh, angry and disturbed and things had gotten so far off the rails that there was no there was not going to be any deep problem solving possibility um let's see what was i saying so so if that were the case then they had to slide into a different mode so their other approach it wasn't a preferred approach it it was a more uh i forget what we called it now more tactical approach Mm -hmm. that would that would be okay we can't do deep problem solving here um Let's oh here, here's an example of that. bunch of people fighting about authorship, another common dispute. Who should be on the paper? Who should be first author? who should be last author, blah, blah blah. But these parties come in, and two of them are saying, no, she didn't she shouldn't be on this paper at all. She didn't do enough work. This is our work." And she's saying, "No, I did all this stuff." Okay, but they're really, really not fit for deep problem solving. So Howard says, okay, well, um, I suggest that we bring in two experts from the NIH in this area of research, and you will present to them what each of you did, and uh, if you will agree, uh, they will tell you who should be where in the authorship, and uh, that'll sell your dispute. So that that, w- that was not really a mediation. It was a kind of like arbitration thing, but that's mm-hmm. what they, they they switched their style to. to this yeah. Tactical.
1: So to wrap up this piece about tacit knowledge, um, it sounds like they're actually like you're saying out loud all the different steps and all the different questions and all the different parts that were not explicit before. So it seems like a great learning and I'm wondering what are your ideas about how that is useful going forward for that particular study and in general?
2: Yeah, in general I think, and I've told Peter Coleman this by the way because I know Peter has done some really great work in this area uh, and I think he may have even been influenced by me we'll have to ask Peter. Okay. But, but what, I, what I suggested was that um, the best way to do research that will inform practice uh, is to make sure that at somewhere in the research practice we do this kind of reflective case-based research. Get mediators talking about or observe them and then get them to talk about why they're doing what they're doing, because that's how you get at implicit knowledge. If you just ask a mediator, how do you handle divorce cases? Like I started with my labor mediators. What do you do? That is, produces this surface knowledge. But if you take a specific dispute and ask someone, why did you do that? That's what we did when we brought these mediators into the lab. We videotaped them doing the angry roommate Dispute. These were, you know, it's a simulated dispute, very common one between two college women rooming together. They get into a big fight. So we said to these mediators, this is, is, uh, think of yourself as representing the university mediation service. These roommates have come to you for help. For 30 minutes, do what you would normally do with a case like this, which they did. Uh, And so uh, when they, so then we asked them to look at yourself on this videotape now and tell us why were you doing what you were doing here? So from that study, we learned, yes, these mediators were influenced, importantly, by a formal model. Some were facilitative, some were evaluative, some were transformative, but they were also heavily influenced by implicit ideas about conflict, so much so, in some cases, that someone who called themselves a transformative mediator, from the point of view of what they told us when they looked at the tape and what our observers could infer from watching their behavior were really not so much transformative. They were more like what Fran Butler did. They had a much more uh, activist view. Transformative mediators generally think of them, they're like the Carl Rogers, if you know the non-directive mm-hmm. approach. They, ask, they summarize what people are saying. They say, it's your conversation. I'm not going to influence. They're fairly non-directive in, mm-hmm. in that sense. But some of them who said, I'm a transformative mediator, were not. Yeah. They were this other thing.
1: You know, as you're saying that, it reminds me of one of the things I believe, and maybe that's why it sort of jumped out at me, is that self-awareness is so critical, because here they are totally thinking that they're going a certain path, and actually, when they look and and are questioned about it, they realize, wow, you know, that's not really what I'm doing. I'm doing something else.
2: And many of the people that we brought in to this uh, laboratory study told us that. This is like a learning experience (laughs) for me, just what you said. Yeah. And some of them said, this is how we should train mediators, you know, have them look at themselves and talk about what they're doing. Interestingly enough, some of the mediators could do that in this study that I, uh, this lab study, but some could not. It was very interesting. Some of them were so tied to their style, Mm -hmm. like I can think of one person in particular, transformative mediator. He could learn nothing from watching himself, except I could have rephrased that better, Mm-hmm. But the observer said, "God, this guy missed the whole point yeah. of what was going yeah. on here but he, he was he was trapped by his his identification with this thought. he wasn't reflective enough right so I would say, for research purposes, oh, also train mediators I mean there's no reason why professional mediators shouldn't be contributing much more to our research than mm-hmm. than they are we we It would be wonderful to train and involve expert practitioners and train them in how to be reflective." Uh, and how to uh, learn what, they're, what they know but can't tell us unless they start reflecting.
1: Sounds like the birth of another project.
2: Yeah, Well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, you know, we are running out of time. I just yes, wanted to ask you. you, is there anything else you wanted to say before we concluded?
2: All mediation is local.
1: Oh, what do you mean by that?
2: By that I mean that the initial uh, definition I gave you, that first mm-hmm. definition, is wrong in the sense that Mediation is not a single thing that can be captured in a single description. Mm-hmm. What I've learned from, I don't know how many years, 40 years of research in this area, is that the context shapes the process. So Jim Wall and I, another collaborator of mine, Jim Wall and I have been studying civil mediations. These are disputes between largely strangers fighting over money, an insurance company fighting against... Uh, somebody who was injured in an accident and, and feels they should get $2 million instead of $8,000, you know. So the the courts use mediators to deal with these cases. In that context, the mediators, many of whom are former judges, and they have, like, three hours to deal with it, and it's only about money, and they're strangers who will never see each other again, that context totally alters what's yeah. done by mediators, even though there are some differences... Uh, but if you compare that with what Howard Gadlin and his team does, they're dealing with complex matters. It's not just about one thing. There are many intangibles here. These are people who have to work together over something that they deeply care about. And they're in an institution that has you know, its own values and norms. Totally different. Mm-hmm. Totally different. And, in fact, I would say uh, it's a much better type of environment and context for skill development. The former judges we saw in the courts, some of them were good at what they were doing, but some of them were just terrible,
0: mm-hmm.
2: in my opinion. They were, you know, browbeating people and, and not being concerned with justice or fairness or anything like that.
1: It's a little bit of a deviation from mediation. That's <laughs> right.
2: It's a form of mediation, but not a good one in my some, for some of them. Yeah.
1: yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Ken, and thank you, everybody, for listening.
0: The music for this show was written and composed by Kevin Johnston and is titled Kingdom Stowaway.